Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm here with Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Editor Rachel Mutter. Hello, you two. All right. We had a huge news week this week, um, and it's hard to know where to start, but our week was certainly hijacked uh, early on by two major breaking uh, news items. The first being the discovery in a Beijing wholesale market of a, uh, a trace of uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, on a cutting board used to slice imported salmon. Now, that led to uh, absolute chaos across the world. First off, uh, in China, there was uh, immediate headlines that spread, yeah, like like wildfire, and the, the Chinese consumers were inundated with information on uh, salmon potentially being a carrier of the virus. Uh, the market was shut down. Uh, salmon imports were halted, and as the story spread uh, further out internationally, it just continued to sow discord in the salmon industry and beyond, because it certainly has had an impact in general on seafood. Uh, Rachel, as a former Chinese resident, um, tell us a bit about what you think occurred here and how... Uh, how consumers in particular are going to react? You had a great interview with uh, with Michelle Huang at Rabble Bank. Tell us what she said. Is this going to blow over or is it not? This is not going to blow over. Um, I think it's the general message. And I think, I think that's fairly obvious for um, anyone to see that sort of ever witnessed any kind of food scandal before. Um, and in China, there have been been many food scandals. And I think this is maybe part of the issue uh, with it happening in in China in particular, because as much as there, from the very beginning, has been quite a lot of information saying, well, of course, this hasn't come from the salmon itself. um, That doesn't stop consumers making the association, even subconsciously. And this was uh, Michelle Huang's Point at Rubberbank, she she said that often in these situations, she's a she's a consumer foods analyst, so she doesn't cover seafood specifically, but she but she covers um, yeah the consumer foods market in China. So we've sort of witnessed um, other food scandals in the country and and the influence that's had on those markets. And she was saying that Rubberbank generally predict well for past food scandals, they sort of predicted often a sort of two to three year fallout from them. Um, which is kind of shocking and not great news for the salmon industry if if that's the way it goes here. Um, I mean, she was saying that it wasn't the salmon. We we all know it wasn't the salmon, right? I mean, there's a lot of scientific evidence that says fish is not a carrier of COVID um, and that the supply chain is far too long from Chile, from Norway, from the Faroes, from Scotland to... um, for anything on packaging or whatever to have to have carried across to China. So despite that, she thinks it will be at least six months um, before Chinese consumers stop associating salmon and COVID, at least six months. And I sort of feel like it will probably be longer because, because Chinese consumers are um, notoriously um, wary of any kind of food scare 
I mean, rightly so, because they've had some horrific ones where, where lots of people have died. Um, so anything like that, I, I think, will have a lasting impact in China. And yeah, and as she, she also pointed out in China, they've got seafood's a very important protein to them, um, but they have a lot of options uh, as to what they can eat. So you have a lot of local species, wild caught species, um, you know, that are often deemed better than or safer than than farmed even even in China but yeah there's there's other things they can be eating and as long as they have that association even subconsciously in their head with with salmon and covid they probably won't be touching salmon particularly in I, I should point out particularly in a raw format um because yeah because a lot of salmon in China is sort of eaten as sashimi um which is sort of a big market there so certainly she felt like people would be avoiding it raw at the very least well, and I believe, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe that still continues to be uh, the CDC, the, the Chinese CDC's recommendation is to not eat it raw, if, if I'm uh, correct. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Rachel, but um, that was sort of the latest advice that I had read. Um, but, you know, they, they were uh, very, I thought, vocal um, uh, about um, about the uh, the fact that it, it more than likely wasn't salmon, uh, and that the uh, coronavirus that was on those samples was likely brought in, um, you know, from from elsewhere, from other uh, from other sources, came into the meat and seafood area, and their um, supposition is that because it is cooler. Because it is humid in there, it'll it was good conditions for the um, for the virus to sort of hold uh, hold stable there. So um, so yeah, the the next steps then are in terms of of just uh, from a trade standpoint, Norway uh, is now it Norway has been scrambling to ensure things are flowing smoothly. Uh, as has Chile, um, the the Norwegian Food Safety Authority. Uh, has been in uh, in discussions. There's going to be inspections uh, with Norwegians and Chinese authorities. Um, those will be remote, but they will be uh, they will be inspecting um, some plants at a, a, a handful of um, a handful of Norwegian companies: uh, Sekingstad, uh, Vikingfjord, and Novasea. So um, we'll see if that sort of calms uh, things down from a trade perspective, and and uh, at least if things get kind of moving. But when it comes to demand, uh, yeah, I I don't really know. There there's so much. I'm not you know I don't know enough about Chinese consumers, um, Rachel, to know. Um, just how severe it will be, but in reading your story in your interview with um, with Michelle at Rabobank, it was a uh, was a little scary. Um, it's not a huge market for salmon, um, but it's a it's a growing one, and it's one that I think people have been um, you know rightly excited about uh, in terms of its potential. But um, mm. but yeah, so I guess yeah. now I mean I th- I think it's just I think it's important to sort of yeah. There's there's a lot of distrust of. Um, food production in China, I suppose, and that's the key here. Probably in China more than any other country. So, so anything that sort of signals any form of risk when it comes to food is taken incredibly seriously by consumers, and um, yeah, sort of leads to a certain amount of panic. So, yes, I think that's what's sort of important 
when you're talking about China and food scares, that it is a sort of different dynamic there because they have been burnt in the past quite badly. Um, so, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it wasn't the best place for it to happen, put it like that. So these kind of open uh, markets like that with meat and seafood, these wholesale markets um, are, are just the, you know, that's what we see in uh, the news. That's what we, those are the photos we see, and that's maybe the image that a lot of Westerners have in their minds of how, Chinese consumers um, shop, but Rachel, what was your reality when you lived there uh, in terms of where and how people do their shopping in in China? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do shop at these big um, these big wet markets, and yeah, and and I would get my at least fruit and vegetables um, from a local wet market. I was less inclined to buy meat and seafood, <laughs> I have to say, because um yes there's varying standards of, of hygiene across them um and and i think unless you're sort of in the know and and know exactly what you're looking for then it's sort of difficult to tell the um the less hygienic stalls from the more hygienic stalls so i i wasn't about to risk that but but fruit and vegetables absolutely and i'd say that the majority of of chinese um still use them on a regular basis. Yeah, they're, they're a massive part of, of Chinese culture and, and food retail. Um, so I know there's been a lot of sort of reports in, in Western press about why aren't these, a lot of questions about why aren't they shut down, you know, they're unhygienic. And, but, but you have to understand this is a huge, it's a huge part of, of Chinese culture and, and habit, um, buying habits. So it's not quite that simple. Having said that, there's obviously also sort of booming growth in in more modern sort of retail formats. Um, but that's very limited to the, you know, sort of tier one cities in China. Um, so you see these sort of ultra modern setups um, between, you know, the, the likes of, you know, Alibaba and um, and these guys. Um, but they're, but yeah, they're not, they're big and they're growing. But they're not, they're, considering the size of China, it's, um, yeah, it's 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 a small percentage, I suppose, that's, that's being sold at those places compared to wet markets. Well, and I wonder if this is going to hasten, though, that move over to um, the larger retailers and, um, you know, some of the uh, the properties there um, that they operate. Like you mentioned, Alibaba, and um, they, I believe, have a couple of sizable chains. And, of course, Walmart is there as well and was one of the ones that pulled pulled salmon from its shelves when when the news uh, broke but yeah i mean i you know i just think this goes to um i think this goes to the the broader overarching theme uh of traceability and once again i think coronavirus um uh, takes a trend that was already happening and supercharges it and just thrusts us right into the future on it and i think traceability is one now where um it's just so critical, especially when there's a, a product that does need to be pulled from the supply chain. In this case, it, it needed to be um, pulled until there was some understanding of where it came from. So absolutely, um, it's right for the authorities to have had the reaction that they did. And I think it's um, I think they've done a good job of uh, of not. I was a little concerned when the news came out that this might be used uh, as kind of a um, as, as kind of a uh, chip in some in trade games that, that they might play with Norway, um, but it, it looks to me like it's it's been um, 
pretty well understood, and and the message has been pretty strong to the Chinese consumers that fish has in no way been linked to coronavirus. I'm curious that I, I'm curious about the international reaction too. I don't you don't see it much beyond kind of the business press. Um, John, I mean, do you see this sort of taking any life beyond China? Yeah, I, I've been watching for that too. And, you know, with so much press on this uh, particular event, you know, you would think it would touch off maybe a pandemic of fear, you know, in markets elsewhere where uh, salmon is imported. But I have not seen um, that at all. And I think the longer this goes on and, you know, the publicity around it kind of starts to die down, it, it probably, you know, the effect on other markets probably will be muted. So I, I don't see it going on. I'm a little surprised I don't, but uh, at least at this point, I don't, I don't think it's going to have much effect outside of China as far as I can see. No, and I think, you know, with with China, um, part of it was it was it coincided with this new fresh outbreak. And um, Mm -hmm. China did as as many of us understood it. China had things under control and it was deep into a recovery by the stage. So I think those two things together uh, are really what has made it so complicated in China. And, And I agree with you. I don't. I don't see this getting a whole lot of traction outside of China. I think there was sort of an initial flurry of interest um, within the the salmon business. It's certainly, of course, um, it, it, it's a, a big, big deal, and there's a lot of fear about it. There were um, the Global Salmon Initiative, National Fisheries Institute, Scottish Salmon Producers Organization. Um, you name it, uh, every group came out. Um, rightfully so and you know and and said hey look there's no evidence linking these things um so uh yeah so so we'll see rachel do you have any any thoughts on whether or not this is gonna um be something the salmon industry will have to battle in non-chinese markets i don't think so no i don't think so i i I think this it's always hard to say, isn't it? But I, yeah, no, I think this is very much a, a Chinese market issue. Um, as you say, it's, you know, it's unfortunate as well at this time that it's associated with sort of the biggest uh, global crisis of our, of our lifetime. Um, <laughs> but yes, but, uh, but I think people, um, yeah, I think for now it's definitely just sort of an internalized Chinese thing. And, and the Chinese market, as you say, is, is currently still small for imported salmon. Um, so, but but a lot of producers have been counting on it for for quite substantial growth, um, particularly the Chileans, of course, for whom this is this is fairly disastrous for a certain group of them. Um, so, yes. So, but I but I think I think it will be limited to China. Yeah. And you know, for those companies that are looking at land based salmon farming in China and uh, uh, you know net pens and things. You know, there's a lot of interest in expanding uh, local production in China. So I imagine this will um, this will help in that cause um, a little bit. Yeah, it could. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. But 
it seems like land-based aquaculture and land-based salmon in particular is just rolling and rolling and rolling on. And I, I, it seems to me that there is enough investor enthusiasm out there that people are feeling pretty cavalier about uh, moving forward with projects. And I think it, it goes to, um, it goes to what, what we're talking about right now with traceability and it goes to all these concerns about global trade and it, um, you know, it, it goes to just seeing how the f- food supply chain is so quickly upended. Um, there's a lot of vulnerability there, and I think everyone's beginning to see that. So that plays in the in the hands of domestic aquaculture production, that's for sure. So uh, let's switch gears over to tuna and over to uh, to Chris Lashevsky, uh, former CEO and president of Bumblebee Seafoods. Um, by by any measure, rose to the top of the seafood industry, um, and was a leader at the National Fisheries Institute, at the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. Very very active in getting Bumblebee involved in a lot of sustainability projects, um, and and just in general a very very vocal, very very uh, visible uh, person in the seafood industry. Um, so this week, John, uh, you and Rachel Sapin, uh, live blogged, uh, Leshevsky's sentencing hearing. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us, um, kind of your take on, on, uh, on what happened as you were watching it over a uh, zoom, I believe. And, um, yeah. And let's talk about what we think about the verdict. Yeah. So real quick, the verdict is, uh, 40 or the sentence is 40 months a $100,000 fine payable in 120 days, and he'll be serving in uh, in a minimum security facility in Lompoc, California. So that that's the uh, that's the uh, unfolding of the sentence um, at the moment. He uh, he has said publicly he plans to appeal. Uh, we'll see how far that goes. Uh, but yeah, the live uh, is, because of COVID. There's a we're fortunate because we could sit in on this um, uh, remotely, which otherwise we would have had to be there in person. But uh, yeah, it was really interesting. You know, um, there was a little bit of trying to relitigate the case on both sides. Um, the DOJ was, I mean, listening to the DOJ, they were. <laughs> They were pretty um, fierce, I'd say. Uh, I, I didn't hear the actual trial when uh, he was convicted, but boy, if, if the tone that they used at the sentencing was the same as during the trial, they're, uh, they, they weren't holding anything back. So it ultimately came down in, I thought the interesting part of the hearing, the sentencing hearing was when the judge talked about the tug he was feeling um, between this image of Lyshevsky as a, a good man, a successful businessman, a son of immigrant parents, uh, definitely noted his uh, charity work and things like that. That versus the idea that he was the mastermind behind something that ripped off you know, millions of people who bought tuna, especially perhaps poor income 
people and those who could least afford to pay more. That was the struggle he was having as he kind of thought through what sentence to to give. So um, it was interesting just to hear him work through that, uh, you know, live. And um, in the end, I think he I, I think he kind of struck the balance he felt was best. And maybe, you know, I've seen some people say it was a light sentence. Um, it seemed to be within the recommendation levels that they talked about earlier, a little lighter than they they talked about. But, you know, the DOJ wanted him 10 years and a million dollars. So um, that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it's been an incredibly long saga um and and it is interesting um Lashevsky gave you an exclusive interview John um after the the uh, sentence was handed down um and it it seems to me that while there is some um some measure of contrition um it seems in general that he really feels like this uh that that this was all um that this was all wrong that there was um that if he made mistakes his mistakes uh would be in in kind of trusting the wrong people i guess but from a from a case point of view uh on the on the facts it really seemed like he um firmly believes that this was um was was not justice was was not served here Oh, no, there's no doubt about that. He he believes 100 percent that um, the government did not prove its case and, um, you know, he shouldn't be headed to prison. So, um, you know, he's since the interview, um, he sent a letter um, kind of detailing in actually very great detail his case again. And um you know, and then I've I've had another email exchange with him since even that, and he mentioned he he's very upset about a technical legal um, thing that was involved here called the per se rule, and basically the essence of it is the government just has to show that there was agreement to commit uh, price fixing, not that the price fixing harmed anybody. That's kind of the thrust of his argument um and you know i i can't speak on on that in any great depth because i i don't know it and i haven't spent the time to research it but yeah no he he feels he is innocent and um he'll feel that way to the to the day he dies judging from you know the conversations we've had yeah. Now, um, what's the what's the next process then in the case? It's still um, there's still civil litigation to be uh, to be hashed out. But in general, is it fair to say this is kind of a, a point of conclusion for all of us that have been following this case, um, and that this this is a little bit of a, um, kind of ties a bow on everything that we've been witnessing. Yeah, I mean, pending uh, an appeal that's successful to change the sentence, which I don't think will happen, uh, there's very, there's not very much left except for him to report to Lompoc on August 17th and begin serving his 
term, and then he has three years probation after that. So that kind of closes the criminal part for him. There's still some other players with uh, Starkist and Chicken of the Sea that uh, may have, I think they've pled guilty. I'm not sure they've gotten their sentence yet. It's uh, I've lost a little bit track of that, but there's still a little bit of that. But yes, there are civil suits still from grocers and things that are going to try and recoup money. So I'll see, we'll see where that goes. So, you know, but one, one thing, sorry, Drew, uh, one thing I, I mean, I've been sitting here the last few days thinking about this and, you know, I, I know Chris, you know, Chris, we've seen him for years at the shows and talked to him over and over and over. And, I'm just left with, okay, how, how do I, how do I figure all this out in my own head? And the only thing I can think of, and it's, it's trite maybe, but it's, you know, you can have a stellar career in anything. It doesn't matter, seafood, whatever, but one maybe bad decision or wrong move can shatter all of that, you know, in, in a matter of minutes. So you know, it's just a good cautionary tale for people that you always have to be looking to, you know, protect yourself from ruining a career that you built over. I think he's 60 years old, so he's probably built that career over 40 years, you know, 30, 40 years. I mean, I wonder what the, you know, beyond, that was just what I was going to ask you is, is what your takeaway was. And Rachel, this goes to you as well. But What's interesting is seafood is kind of unusual. There, there's other trade shows out there, of course, uh, in for the other proteins, of course. But seafood's kind of unusual in the in the way that top executives all do congregate and all do get together. Um, I don't think that the other the other proteins um, are quite interact in quite the same way uh in part because i don't think um other proteins are as globally traded certainly they are but it's far certainly they they trade but um but it's it's not as diverse it's not as fragmented um and and it's not as um you know it's it's not dealing with so many different types of products so I just wonder if if there is something to uh, to this that maybe is a cautionary tale about how uh, the seafood industry interacts in these shows. Rachel, any thoughts on that? I think we've already discussed in past podcasts uh, and amongst ourselves that trade shows are likely going to be very very different going forward. Um, but what do you think this might? do if anything i mean do you think that there is going to be changes in behavior do you think people will um maybe be a little more careful um when meeting with uh, people from other companies Mm. yeah i mean the seafood industry as you say it's sort of a little bit of a a club i guess it's uh among the bigger players certainly it's it's a small industry i suppose as, as protein production goes um and yeah, you're right. I think it probably is a different dynamic to sort of other food production industries quite often. And yeah, I mean, this is obviously already burnt um, the U.S. I think I think that's obvious, the sort of U.S. seafood sector. Um, you know, that's obvious from 
from the lengthy drawn out announcements every morning at the GSMC conference um, for the last couple of years about not discussing prices and um, sort of not having closed meetings about about these things. So, yeah, which sort of surprised me. I, I don't see that kind of wariness um, across other geographical regions in the seafood industry yet. Um, certainly not a lot of talk of, you know, don't be discussing prices and, you know, at conferences and trade shows. Um, but maybe this sentencing will spark a little bit of of, of rightful fear um, into the hearts of, of the rest of the industry because I, yeah, I certainly think it's a risk. I mean, you, yeah, you just need to look at some of the sort of, well, any trade shows that go on, there's sort of a lot of private meetings aren't there. And then um, I suppose you need to look at some of the, the more closed meetings that, that even the press aren't allowed into and sort of wonder, wonder what's being discussed there. But yeah, I think the seafood industry needs to be careful to to even, you know, even if nothing is going on, but to, to be careful not to look as though something is going on. Yeah. Well, Drew, you mentioned beef and, uh, you know, the beef industry and this, this uh, a similar situation there. And we will get some insight to that um, in the next year or so, because the DOJ is going after beef and poultry producers for the same price fixing uh, behavior. And they're using that per, per se uh, rule to pursue them. So you know, we'll we'll see what happens there. I don't know a lot of details about those two um, developments yet, but uh, you know, we'll be watching them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and there's also um, obviously cases ongoing against um, Norwegian salmon farming companies. I should say Scottish salmon farming companies, although you know they're all owned by Faroese or Norwegian or mainly. Um, but we still have that ongoing in the in the EC, and there is a, a case ongoing, class action case ongoing here in the U.S. as well, which I don't think has any legs. The EU one, it's hard to say. Um, the U.S. one's just basically a carbon copy of the of the EU, and they're trying to um, trying to make the same argument. But it's it's very very difficult to make that argument because of. Um, uh, the trade flows of, of salmon, etc. Um, so there are cases out there, and I think there it, it's going to be interesting to see as the industry does consolidate because there needs to be more and more. There will be more and more. Um, it's going to be interesting how they run into these things and how they handle these things because size and scale, as anybody will tell you, is going to be key for... Um, broad protein production and it, it's going to be key for meeting the needs of these um, of of a, a growing population and meeting the needs of traceability sustainability all the things that consumers are going to require you need scale you need to be able to pay a lot of money for that and invest a lot of money in that um, but that can also mean that you run afoul of, uh, of competition commissions as well all right, let's leave it there. Thank you, John. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, we will be back next week. Just a reminder, on June 30th, we have our webinar on the whitefish outlook, and we've got a really, really great lineup. We have Birdseye Igloo, Aspersen, Vin Juan, Rabobank, 
Chang International and Insula that will all be joining us. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, everybody needs guidance right now across all the sectors, so we're very lucky to have uh, this group of experts to talk about where things might be headed in one of the industry's most important sectors. Okay, folks, we will speak to you next week.